Welcome back to the podcast, the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. Today, we're looking back at a q and It's Q&A number 61, if you're interested. We're approaching number 100 here in real time, but we're kind of f- flashing back to talking about producing albums, transcribing chord progressions. Yeah, I know it's really hard, and a lot of us have the same issues uh, ongoing with transcribing chord progressions, but we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about learning tunes, and we're talking about getting into a performance-based mindset, meaning you got to be in that mindset to, to hold yourself accountable to a high level of performance all the time. So without further ado, I'm going to jump over to me uh, from the past to talk to me in the present. Uh, but thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to the audio experience. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a comment, give us a like, share it with a friend. There's not that many jazz trombone podcasts, so uh, I hope you enjoy it and uh, let us know what you'd like to hear more of, more music, more speaking, more interviews. Uh, I'd love to hear back from you. So thanks for being here and catch you real soon. Uh, two things I want to talk about today. One is the last chance for pre-orders on the Rhythm Changes course. I dropped a Rhythm Changes course in pre-order this week, full full launch next week um, on the 29th, Monday. But uh, the pre-orders are open if you're on YouTube. If you're on Facebook, you can find the link uh, to grab that. The other thing I want to talk about is production and how to produce, how to think about producing an album, how to take on that production role, and just some thoughts in in terms of, uh, you know, managing that process and what it looks like. One of our groups at school is going into the studio this weekend, the YouTubes. And uh, I've been preparing with, along with our TF and kind of guiding him through this process. And I thought it's just not as obvious as maybe it was to me and is to me after going through the process a few times. So so the first thing I think about when I'm producing a record or thinking about um, hiring a producer, the type of things that they're going to take care of on a session is uh, just kind of managing the flow of the day, number one, and being that set of trusted ears. So things that you want to make sure that you have for the day when you get a producer, you want to collaborate on with them, is have them have a full understanding of what the scope of the project is, what the desired outcomes are of the project, what you want the project to be like at the end, and then kind of working backwards from there because you got to define kind of what your metrics metrics are, what your goals are. Is it okay not to finish in a day? Uh, do you need that person to be running the schedule? So a couple of things that I like to do is um, make spreadsheets. I know it's not very exciting, but I'll hold up, you know, kind of what I do. So this is just like an example spreadsheet that I printed out, and it's just a schedule of basically hour by hour, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. So what time to show up? When we're going to be sound checking, who's going to be sound checking when, and really taking a deep dive into like really just that logistics and the schedule. Because if you fail to plan, it's really easy to like get off schedule with your day. I mean, there's certain people that are able to just schedule time in the studio, go into the studio, and just like let creativity flow. But sometimes you have to be a little bit more organized. So um, I just think for me, when you have a limited time and a lot of moving parts, you know, we do have some COVID regulations. A certain number of people can be in the studio at a time, so we can't record everybody at the same time, which is uh, makes things take a little bit longer, right? Because you got to do every tune twice. So that's what I do. I block it out hour to hour, what tunes are going to be played, what tunes to be recorded. And then uh, on a separate tab on that sheet, I like to chart out all the events that are happening on each tune. Uh, And not only do I have this, this list of events that's happening on each tune, so I know what's coming up. I can tell the engineer which channels are gonna have solos. I can tell people what's going on. I can say, okay, this person's gonna solo, so the engineer can pay attention to that. They can adjust levels accordingly. Um, 
it, having all those things is scores. So especially when you have a large ensemble, it's important for your producer to have the score because the producer can go ahead and start marking in rehearsal letters. They can tell, they can be guiding. Well, since this is what happens all the time. You get into these situations where people go like, uh, I really, oh, we got to go back like 30 seconds. Oh, no, that's too far. Oh, no, that's not enough. That's too far. Oh, wait, go forward like 10 seconds. No, go back 10 seconds. And you're trying to find a punch. But if you have the score, then uh, we can go to an exact bar number, even if you're not using a click. I tend not to use click when recording. If I do use a click, I try to use like a big beat click, like maybe one every other beat, like one and three, or even just on one, just to keep the band together, um, depending on the comfort level of the players with a click, but it's generally better not to bother using a click at all uh, for that organic feel if you want it to kind of shift around. So get the scores, and then I learned this trick taking two different color pens, basically. First take, mark all the mistakes in one color. Second take, mark all the mistakes in a second color. Pick which, which, which one has like the better vibe and then make the appropriate fixes from there, especially because we're gonna have to lay down the rhythm tracks first and then the trombones. So um, we're gonna, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a full take. If it's really good, then we'll just make the fixes that are necessary. If it's not good, we'll do another one and then uh, make the fixes as necessary. Just take those two different color pens and then um, as you circle and highlight the different parts that are good or bad, um, it makes it really easy to go back. Those are some things about producing a session that I think go maybe unnoticed. And it's just those little things, those little planning items. And then, of course, in the on the day, it's your job to, you know, make sure that, number one, the musicians trust you and they trust your opinion, judgment, uh, and trust your ability to make calls on the fly. Because you don't know, as an artist, sometimes you don't know what's good and what's not good while you're playing. I mean, you obviously know what sounds are good and if, how you want to represent yourself. But you got to get somebody in that control room that is going to be able to go ahead and like make those calls for you. So that's what an important aspect of production uh, and just kind of making things go smoothly. So that's number one, why I have a schedule, why I pre-plan breaks, why I pre-plan extra time into the end of the day. Like I always put an hour at the end of the day. We gotta be done an hour early so that if we have extra stuff to fix, if we've got to back up files, if we've got to move files, if we, whatever it is that we have to do, we need to be able to allot time for those activities. So I always have extra time booked into the end of the day for that stuff, at least a half an hour, if not a full hour uh, to do all that kind of stuff. So as you go forward and you start thinking about your projects and bringing on a producer, you know, you not only want artistic feedback from that person, but you also want that person to be able to answer questions, manage the band, uh, while, you know, get people where they need to be. In a big band session, sometimes it's like herding cats, you know, get them back into the studio, get the next take. Everybody's trying to go to the bathroom. When you're trying to do a take, you got to be um, on top of it. And the more of an on, on a schedule you can be, um, the more it's easy to let the session just flow. So the best sessions are easy. The musicians show up and play. They don't even have to deal with any of the details. So, you know, the last thing I want to say about the production process, you have to have a good idea of what you want it to sound like going in. You have to be able to tell the engineer when something's not right. So this happens sometimes with bass, for example, is a, is a big one. Sometimes the engineer might not know what an acoustic jazz bass sound should sound like. And you might have to be able to, one, um, show them an example quickly and two, guide them a little bit in terms of like the sound and how it is and can you tighten it up can you add some compression uh, to the mid-range or the low range or the high range because it's like kind of blowing out a little bit so you have to know a little bit about that kind of thing um, I wouldn't say that every engineer needs to have every producer has to have the level of engineering uh, that's necessary they just have to be able to articulate 
in words the sound that they're trying to look for. So um, knowing what a trombone, and for this session, I got to know what the trombones sound like, all the different people. How can I capture their sounds and guide the engineer to capture their sound best? Sometimes that's with a microphone choice. Sometimes it's with placement. Sometimes it's with tweaking the EQ. Um, all those different ki kinds of things. So that, that's what a producer does. That's why you should have a good producer uh, at a session. That's why they're worth every cent that you pay them uh, or every amount of uh, favors that you do in return for them in the future or whatever that might be. So I hope you'll consider you know, doing that into the future. And it's something I really I enjoy doing uh, and I've gotten more into over the years. It's really nice to be able to help somebody else to realize their artistic vision and then to be able to entrust somebody else with yours uh, in the future after that. So uh, if you've never thought about it before, that's kind of what a producer does. I, there's a whole episode that I did with Ryan Truesdell, who's a great producer, Grammy-winning producer with uh, Maria Schneider this year. That's kind of the production process in terms of like an acoustic jazz recording session vibe, not production like making beats or tracks or mixing, anything like that, but just kind of that in-person uh, production person that's going to help you get the acoustic session happening. So how do you transcribe chord progressions and what is your proce process to transcribing? It's kind of, it's pretty similar to this other question. Let's see if we can kind of combine these together. Transcribing chord progressions, the best way to do that is on the piano. I wasn't always able to do so. Um, so I had a system and it was a very slow system, but over time it got faster and faster and faster. The system was hear the bass note, hear if the chord is major or minor, hear if the seventh is major or minor, and then from there, deduce the possibilities uh, of what's possible. Because if you have a major third and a major seven, it's probably a major seven. There's other times where it might be more extensions than that, or maybe it's a C, maybe it's a six chord or something like that. But I try to get those two things, three things, I suppose, which is function, bass note, and quality. And so if you can get those three things just by focusing on, okay, what's the third, what's the seventh, after you figure out what the root is, uh, you can have a pretty solid understanding, a pretty solid kind of roadmap for what all the chords are. And then if you know, like in a, if it's a show tune, for example, or a Broadway tune, that's probably going to be like 2-5-1. Uh, use, your, use your knowledge to try to help fill in the gaps. Use the melody. So if you can use the melody and then you think, oh, wait, so what is the, the note in bar five? And if you see that, it's, uh, let's say, it, the chord is G7 and the melody note is A, and you're like, oh, it's a natural nine. Or if you go and say, like, it's a G7 and the note is E, you're like, oh, it's a 13. It's, it must be like a G13, or maybe it's a G6, because you can kind of figure it, figure it out and deduce it from those kind of breadcrumbs that the composer and the improvisers leave along the way. So for chord progression transcription, at the beginning, that's what I would do. Write down on a scratch piece of paper, just a random piece of paper, write, take and just write it down, not staff paper, just write down, sketch out the form, write the root notes, and then say, okay, is this one major or minor? Is this one major or minor? Is this one major or minor? And so sometimes that means just like playing it, pausing and hitting on the piano, like, okay, I know the root is C, so I'll play it and then I, I stop and I hit E and I say, oh, okay, that wasn't it, it's not major. So play it and stop and hit mm, E flat. Okay, killing. It must be minor. Is that going to give you the full story? Because no, of course, if you have an E flat and an E, then it'll be a dominant, uh, a dominant chord with a sharp nine. But one chord tone at a time. And so it takes a long time. It's got to you got to go slow, but you got to start sometime. And so for me, it's like start as soon as you can because as soon as you can uh, makes the process faster in the long run. 
And like I said, what I've said many times on the channel before, and I've said many times in master classes and to my students all the time, as soon as I threw away my real book and had to start relying on my ears all the time and transcribing every tune I knew. So that's how I started transcribing by ear. You know, but I, you know, I've talked about this with some students as well. I got this from my improv class at Juilliard with Ben Wolf. He used to talk about all the time. There is no such thing as the changes, only the changes that are being played right now. And I, maybe that's a little bit esoteric but it's true because it's like you kind of really need to memorize like what the function is of the chord progression or like the big picture like where are we going what key centers are we going through because uh, the specific qualities of a chord could change over time oh like this is the perfect example we were working on this semester web city so what i was going to say is like it's like the telephone game and uh with this tune um web city if you listen to various versions, like you go back to the beginning, it's a Bud Powell tune. So if you go back to like Bud Powell playing with uh, Fats Navarro, it's played one way, right? And then it kind of over time, it morphed into playing all these different kind of ways with different changes. And if you even go so far as to say there's an Art Blakey Jazz Messengers version with Bobby Watson and Wynton Marsalis where they don't play the, the bridge. So they don't play the bridge melody there and they don't play the right changes, quote unquote, the right changes, but they just turn it into a rhythm changes. Whereas if you listen to the original, it's a little bit different. It goes two, five to four, and then uh, two dominant, five dominant. It's really interesting, like this telephone game of like the, the aural tradition of it, stuff being passed along. It's like it's when you investigate certain tunes, you can hear it uh, straight away. So when I have students learn tunes, like I try to tell them, like certain tunes, it's like you just learn it, like Giant Steps, for example. You just kind of have to know, you just kind of have to learn it. But um, when we're learning songbook tunes, it's like, yeah, you got to kind of have different versions. And like, here's a few different ways of doing this or a few ways of thinking about it. But ultimately, it's about being able to hear and react and play together um, with the band and uh, with everyone there. So we sort of answered this. But so that was the process kind of for learning new tunes. But in terms of internalizing the changes, um, internalizing the changes is kind of along the same lines. If you get rid of the sheet music, you get rid of the memorization process um, because you're just learning it. Just like you learn a language, just like you learn words, just like you learn a concept. If you just learn it from the recording, play it along with the recording, then you just learned it and you don't have to write it down and you don't have to memorize it because you just learned it. So for me, this comes at just, just trying to be efficient. You know, it's efficiency in that you learn it directly. There's no memorization. You can learn it on piano and trombone at the same time. You know, so much of jazz music, learning jazz music, playing jazz music for that matter is mental. Playing trombone for that matter, matter is just a mental game of knowing what you're supposed to be doing and really being able to kind of plan ahead, know where you're going, have a big this big picture awareness of things and how how harmony relates to the tune. And so to internalize, that's what I do. I, I learn it right from a record. I don't memorize it. If I have to memorize it from a sheet of paper, it takes so, so long. So even if somebody gives me the music, it's probably faster for me to memorize if I just learn it without the music, <laughs> you know? And it's also important to remember that uh, you can't necessarily memorize or internalize something in a day. It takes multiple days, you know? I think there's probably something written about this somewhere and I've, I haven't been able to find where I read it first, but like there's a kind of a strange phenomenon of if you like read about or learn stuff like right before you go to bed and then you go to bed, like it helps stay in your brain better. I'm sure someone knows a little bit more about that than I do. Yeah, it's super interesting. So if you practice right before you go to bed, it's been trying something you're trying to memorize. I've noticed 
that I tend to remember it better. So there's a, like, I don't know if that's a trick or a hack or a just part of human experience that if you do that, it can be helpful. Anyway, so anyway, that's how I learn a tune and that's how I uh, internalize the tune. Just go straight to that internalization. With rhythm changes, how do you balance clearly playing the changes with feeling like you have to play over every single chord? Well, the important thing is that you hit the important notes that define the harmony in the big picture. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you play one, six, two, five, three, six, two, five, if you play it one time and define it, then the next time you don't have to necessarily play it the same way. You can go ahead and uh, play like maybe the larger picture key centers. That's what I like. So that's the bigger picture is that you have to be both very specific to each change in the micro and know the function in the macro. So, you know, in one sense, you can just be like skating over changes by like just playing the major key center. But if I'm playing in B flat and then, but really if I play F7, you know, over that se section B flat, F7, B flat, F7, I can kind of get away with just playing one, one sound. But like, so if I play every change, right so i'm thinking about playing every single change but if i maybe switch my mental concept and say all right i'm gonna play the bigger function of the whole section which is like b flat and it goes to four and then it's two five back to the top of the a section again like i'm thinking of one thing and then the other so it's like big picture micro macro micro macro micro macro going back and forth between those couple of things and trying to make that balance you know and then on the bridge you can play longer sounds right right you can play one sound for two chords two two bars so you stretch it out so that's what i like to do or i like to kind of improvise based on the melody which is something that is basically kind of what's the framing for the course that i launched this last week um well it will be launched next next week but so the course is really like going through tunes right so we play melodies that you know kind of make you improvise in a different way if you play like duke ellington's cottontail that's going to come across one way you might want to improvise one way like like kind of a simple way like right kind of thinking about that riffy kind of melody and then from there you'd want to maybe say okay well what if we're playing a bebop tune you want to play a little bit different
So there's kind of like different vibes, different type of like vocabulary, rhythmic vocabulary, and it's all kind of coming from the melody. Um, so that's why I like to do. So that in that course, we talk, we go through eight tunes, um, talking about all different, like kind of starting with like a jazz blues, you know, and then we kind of break it down further. So if you want to check that out, you can either go to the link in my Instagram bio if you're on Instagram, or it should be linked on YouTube and Facebook, but it's Nick Finzer Virtual Studio Rhythm Changes Series 1. <laughs> so, there, I mean, there's lots of different ways to think about it, but that's kind of where I'm coming from is like, there's these different approaches, kind of like a pentatonic -y approach, like Lester leaps in or something like that, like a simpler approach. And then there's like a bebop approach, or then there's even like, you know, playing like a tune like, um, we don't do this on the course, but there's Elliot Mason has a great tune called Yulio. It's got a more open feel, it has more augmented chords. You can play more different kinds of vocabulary, but it's all kind of contextual. Like you have to play a tune and improvise on a tune on the tune in a way, to, at least to me, that's similar enough to the melody. So it sounds like one song. It doesn't sound like you're improvising on a different song than what you um, played the melody of, right? I have my junior recital tonight. Any advice on performance mindset? Yeah, man, enjoy, first of all, enjoy the recital. Um, the thing is to remember is that eventually you you realize and experience that pretty much every gig is uh, the same, whether it's the largest gig uh, or the smallest gig, you it's the same. And whether there's one person in the audience or 10,000, pretty, it's pretty much the same, depending on how much you give in to the situation, meaning like, how much do you like worry about the audience? So for example, when you play in front of your peers, it's a lot more nerve wracking potentially for me than it is to just play in front of a bunch of people, right? Because you don't know who's in the audience, you don't know if they know about music, if they care about trombone, et cetera. But if I play from, for like at the ITF this summer, the International Trombone Festival, like I'm gonna have a lot more pressure personally on myself because of, you know, everybody knows what's happening. <laughs> You know, they know about the instrument. They want to do the similar things that I want to do and all of that. So it's a, it feels different. But at the end of the day, if you're enjoying playing the music, uh, you're going to have a more positive experience than you worry about making a mistake. So I always like to say whether we're trying to change something technique wise or we're trying to play music and focus on the music, like focus on the outcome, not on the thing that might happen or not on the negative thing. Like uh, if somebody's trying to like someone's having a problem with articulation or flexibility or something, they, they go like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What, and they focus on that a lot. And I tend to send people the other way and said, okay, well, what do we want it to feel like? We want it to be like this. So focus on that. Focus on like playing with that good sound, having that good sound concept, articulating this way. Focus on how that music is gonna sound. So it's like, if you make a nice artistic statement and you crack a note, that's 100 times better than being a robot and executing perfectly, but sounding uh, totally flat. It's not interesting. It's like, wow, that was technically sound. <laughs> Nobody care. I mean, for me, I don't care about that. And so, you know, then there's plenty of artists that kind of execute in that way, that they're really focused on technical mastery. And it's cool. It's great. But that, it's not, that's only a part of it, you know. Enjoy, try to enjoy the music making. Don't worry about it. It's just one day. It's just one gig of thousands of gigs, thousands of performances, whether they're school performances, internet performances, back-in-person performances. Let, let the preparation kind of speak for itself. Uh, I'm gonna kind of just talk a little bit more, go back to some of this rhythm changes stuff and talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some ideas that you can use to help practice rhythm changes uh, on your own 
other than just like focusing on the tune stuff, which I think is important. And I think at least for me has yielded success uh, in terms of like learning how to improvise in different ways and different approaches on tunes. But kind of the thing that I like to do is really use limitation in practicing and limitation in um, uh, teaching as well, like as a teaching tool. Uh, so what I like to do is kind of just eliminate one or more choices, mostly more, <laughs> but and say something like, okay, we're going to, you know, focus on just walking a bass line, which essentially is just playing quarter notes, right? So if you just say, okay, I'm going to practice playing quarter notes through this whole form, or am I going to uh, like just play whatever I want? No, I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to play just quarter notes and it's going to sound like a bass line. So maybe something like this. And if I play that enough times, then I'm going to get bored and it'll force me to try something else. the second A being like a little bit more longitudinal in my approach or kind of playing playing down like the full range of the horn rather than sticking and playing. Kind of just like well, root third, root third, root third, root third. And obviously sometimes you need to do that first. You need to you know play the basics first. Root three, root seventh, all these kind of things play the arpeggios, but really um, it's a balance of all that stuff. So I like to use that limitation. So if you've never walked a bass line through the rhythm changes, you know, that's a really good place to start uh, as a challenge because it's real time. You don't get to stop. You play constant quarter notes. And then if you can do that pretty easily, then you can say, okay, now I'm going to go ahead and say I'm going to do eighth notes and I'm going to play eighth notes all the way through. So you got to find different ways. You know, is it bebop language eighth, eighth notes or is it going to be scalar eighth notes or is it going to be diminished scale eighth notes and where do I put those? And there's a lot of levels, but the, be, the that's the best practice tool. You know, people say, students sometimes say like, oh, I don't, how do you practice jazz? Or like, how do you get better at practicing jazz and having like ideas? And it's this idea, it's limitations. You're practicing um, coming up with stuff on your own because that's what we're doing all the time. We're improvising, right? So that's what you have to f practice doing is limiting yourself. Can I do this? Can I only do this? Can I only use this one tool? And yeah, let boredom motivate you to creative variations. That's a beautiful way to put it. Do you have a warm-up practice routine or does it change daily depending on time, energy level, upcoming gigs? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a routine. I have a routine if I can do it. I don't usually get to do it. It involves basically trying to hit as many of things as possible in as short of time as possible. I wasted a lot of time in undergrad having too long of a warm-up because I thought I needed a too long warm-up. But I need to hit sound, I need to hit flexibility uh, in terms of like lip flexibility, and I need to hit articulation as like the major things. And so I, over the years, have come up with different ways of doing that. And so for me right now, that results in focusing a lot on pitch bends, using the lower register, the pedal register, uh, and um, wide intervals, because that gets me warmed up the fastest and helps me to articulate the musical ideas that I'm trying to get to in my playing around this time. So it's going to change, obviously, and based on the things you said, the time, the time of day or the time I have, the gigs that are coming up, what do I need to be able to do? You know, I think about flexibility as a concept rather than like, oh, it's lip slurs. Flexibility is a concept to be able to play what you need to play when you need to play it. That's how I think about it. So 
um, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do everything or do everything in a warm up session. But that flexibility is that you, you can access, you know, those different skills, high range, low range, fast articulation, slow articulation. That's what flexibility is to me. So that warm up routine is, is that it's pitch bends, it's false tones, it's the lower register, the pedal register, it's using different kinds of wide interval flexibilities at this point um, to to inform what I'm going to play. Uh, yesterday I posted something and so the cue, the questions are still there from uh, yesterday's F rhythm changes. So while we're waiting for a few more questions to kind of join us, maybe I'll play a little bit. Maybe I'll play a different rhythm changes key. Let's see. Maybe A flat. <laughs> You know, I just like to, for me, just even challenge myself with playing different keys. I know in that course, we did a, a 12 key challenge, just playing straight through bass lines in 12 keys. So that was hard. A really good exercise. And so, you know, got to have a little bit of knowledge of like, what are the different options? Like, what are the ways you can navigate the changes? You know, okay, what do you listen for when listening to freshman auditions at UNT? So a couple things. The, the primary thing that I listen for, does that person actually want to get a jazz degree? You'd be surprised that that could eliminate a lot of people. And uh, because they might have a different definition of like what jazz means. So if you don't want to play standards, if you don't want to learn the history, if you don't want to know about Duke Ellington and know about J.J. Johnson and study their music and learn about Slide Hampton and these type of people, like that person and me are probably not a good fit because I'm going to keep telling you to go to these things and you're going to keep pushing back against it. Maybe that's a good thing for you. I mean, I think it would be a good thing for you to have that informed history. Whether or not you're going to be like a trombone soloist or like want to play in that style is irrelevant. Like as a practitioner, teacher of the instrument, it's important to have at least some context 
that's what I always say is like, you got to be coming from an informed position. I don't care what kind of music you play or how you want to express your art. Like that's you, man. Like you do you, but you have to have some context for me. You have to have context of like what, what it is that you're trying to do. So number one thing, make sure that uh, that person is on the same page. And that's extremely obvious by the tune choices. That's why there's a lot of tune choices there. It's extremely obvious by um, the language that they play, the transcription that they pick, how they play the transcription, uh, and then what they play when they're improvising. It's very evident if they've never studied improvisation before. And it's not that I'm not willing to teach someone improvisation from the ground up. You know, we do this all the, that all the time, but well, there's only so much room in the studio and I only have so many so many lessons I can fit in in a week based on the teaching load. So, you know, that's 10 to 12, you know, 10 to 12 people across all levels. So that includes undergrads, graduates, you know, and we have a big studio. And so, I mean, 10 to 12 is a lot compared to somewhere like Juilliard, right? So um, it's important to know that that person wants to learn jazz. So that's number one. Number two is, can you play the trombone? Are you going to fight me about playing the trombone? That's the second one. Like, okay, this person um, clearly has not practiced their Roshu etudes and can't play the trombone. This is going to be an uphill battle, you know. And sometimes, you know, that's why we also have a classical audition for the undergrads at UNT. Um, there has to be a certain amount of fundamental technique that goes into being a trombone major at UNT or really at any school. Like, if you don't deal with the instrument, it's doubtful you're going to get into the, like, whatever is your top school without any trombone technique. Because trombone is hard. And again, we can teach you trombone, but like it's got to be there like to get into the studio. Now, that's not to be said that like some people have come, taken lessons like secondary lessons, played in ensembles and then audition in, in their second or third year uh, and then start the jazz degree then if they don't get accepted, you know, right away. So that's the thing. Like if you really want to go to a certain school, you know, don't give up. I, I wanted to go to Juilliard. And so I took an entire year off from school just to prep for the audition because I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get in here. This is where I want to go. That's uh, that's sometimes what you got to do. So that's what I'm looking for. Basic fundamentals of trombone. Do you like to play jazz? That's a simple oversimplified answer probably. And then uh, doesn't go into like other considerations. But generally, that's that's it. What's a moment in music you realized you needed to up your game all the time? Uh, a huge, a huge one was going to Argentina the, uh, to 2013 uh, for Trombonanza. It's great festival, great artists over the years, um, getting there and seeing how many amazing trombone players there were. And I was like, oh, crap, I need to get myself together. Like I was there, I was like featured and like whatever. I'm young, I'm whatever, I'm doing my thing, just a one year out of college. And they were gracious enough to allow me to go. And um, that showed me a lot like you need to get it together you need to like practice the trombone these guys are playing circles around you if you want to be in these positions like you want to be featured in a festival you have to like bring your a game all the time you know and i think i think about this sometimes when i think about someone like wycliffe gordon i think about i've seen him play with the best i've seen him play by himself i've played with him in, a, in just like a lesson and then i've also seen him play with elementary school band our middle school band, uh, and he sounds great no matter what. And I realized at some point that you do kind of have to turn on the switch and you're going to say, I'm going to sound great no matter what. And I have to find out what that means for me. Like, how do I play 
when I'm in a situation where maybe like the band isn't as good as it could be, or maybe the band isn't exactly what I want. They're not doing what I want or what I imagined. You just got to turn that on, turn it on and bring your A game. And I think that sometimes, you know, people make excuses. I do. And uh, that's you just got to decide like, okay, I need to figure out ways to sound good. Cool. No matter what, no excuses. And um, that turned it around, that turned things around for me. I mean, nothing really changed other than I was trying to be more prepared. And uh, it prepared me for a lot of situations in the ensuing five years of doing a lot of touring with my own band and not being able to take my band. touring. So I was touring with my music, but not my band. And so getting all different kinds of situations with people with all different kinds of strengths and weaknesses that play all different kinds of music and maybe not necessarily always like straight ahead jazz is their main thing. So it, it taught me a lot about just do it. You know, you have to get it together and you have to uh, make it happen on your own sometimes. So that was a good lesson. But that was the start of that for sure. What is my favorite blues head? I like, um, when would the blues leave? Ornette Coleman, that's a good one. Uh, I like, uh, I've been playing a lot. Take the Coltrane for a while. I don't know. I like that one. It's Coltrane Ellington uh, from that record. I like those two. I don't like Sandu. I'll tell you that. I like playing in D flat, so anything in D flat is cool. I like to play SKJ. Have you ever been called for a classical gig? Would you take it if you were called for one? Yes. The answer is yes, especially around this time of year. If you don't have an Easter gig in New York around uh, and you're a trombone player, you're doing something wrong uh, in, in a non-pandemic world, of course. Uh, but um, yeah, I've played a lot of classical gigs for sure. I might take it. Maybe not, though. I kind of am in the business of not taking non-artistically fulfilling gigs at the moment. I mean, there's no gigs at the moment. But um, if it was a classical gig with people that I really um, wanted to play with, then yeah, of course I would. Or if they needed someone that could like improvise, like, you know, like Marshall Jilks wrote some quartets that like feature like one player that's more of like a jazz player. And so I would do something like that. I might do like trombone quartet or something like that just to challenge myself, but I don't think they would call me. <laughs> but if they were, if they wanted to call me because they wanted to do something that's kind of a crossover thing, I would definitely do it. But yeah, I've played plenty of classical gigs in the past. Not so much orchestra. My classic, my sound in classical music is not like, it's not New York Phil enough. And I'm okay with that. You have to kind of, at some point, become okay with the things that you're good at and things you're not good at. I don't have to play all those gigs, you know, because I also am involved in education and I also have a label and do um, consulting and do marketing uh, for artists and social media and advertising and all these kind of things that kind of go in around uh, so I can focus on playing the gigs that um, I am suited for and not having to play so much every random classical gig that might come my way. But yes, the short answer is yes. What is your favorite style of jazz? I haven't really think about it that way. Maybe eras? I mean, I play best like modern straight ahead is what you might call it. It's kind of like post-tonal bebop, post-bop. But uh, I don't know. You can think about it's all the people that I love kind of mashed up into one. Herbie Cancock, Chick Corea, Michael Brecker, J.J. Johnson, Curtis Fuller, the Jazz Messengers, you know, the great like bebop stuff from like the Dizzy Gillespie, Big Band, and Slide Hampton, all that kind of mashed up into one. So it's like built on the tradition of swing and built on the tradition of tunes and improvising, but also kind of with a modern spin. And that's why I like playing with, uh, you know, Lucas Pino so much. He's got that and I try to do that with my music as well, like my personal music. It's like, yeah, 
there's modern influences, you know, there's modal stuff, there's non swinging stuff, but at the same time, you know, it's connected. There's, there is swing on the record, you know, there's a tune, there's stuff that resembles a blues. Uh, how do you stick with your recurring content? How do you hold yourself accountable? I, this is something that I've never had trouble with as just like a person is like, if I decide that I'm going to do something or be committed to something, then I just, I just am. Um, and I've always had this kind of practice of like putting everything off until I have done the thing. And so for a long time in undergrad, that was just practicing. It was like, I wouldn't hang out with anyone. I wouldn't talk to anyone. I wouldn't do anything fun until I had practiced. Uh, and I guess that, I don't know if it's good or bad. It's probably mostly bad, but, um, it kind of, you know, it pushed me to practice more and get better and all that. Um, but so how do I stick with recurring content? The, the one is scheduling it into my calendar. Two is, you know, being okay when I want to take a day off or something like that, experimenting, trying different things, um, and then getting help. So I hire help. That's what, um, that's what I do um, to, to stick with the content for sure. So I say, you know, I have a couple editors on the Outside In Music team. If you don't know, Outside In Music is a label, media company. Um, and so we have a couple of people that are good uh, video editors. So then I say, I need clips. I need things to post on Instagram. Um, and then uh, I just stick with it. But, you know, when I, when I stopped my first teaching job in, at Florida State, um, I said, I'm going to go all in on this internet stuff and launch the virtual studio 2017. And I'm going to uh, work on YouTube. I'm going to figure out how to get to, onto YouTube and do the things that I'm passionate about and share. And I think uh, that mission has been going on for four years or so. And I don't know, I committed to it. And so now I just stick to it. And so the other, the other trick is to batch content. So when I do this, for example, I've got hours and hours and hours of me talking about questions, right? And so then I have to go to someone and say, hey, can you clip this up for me? Go and find the interesting stuff uh, out of it. Because a lot, some of it is me just going, hmm, I can't remember, you know? But some of it is just, uh, whatever. It's somewhat insightful or interesting, at least. I don't know if it's insightful, but uh, my experience, stories, etc. It just comes out in the course of an hour, giving an hour every week to just talking about stuff. And then some some good things come out of it. You know, I've got the podcast that comes out every week, uh, the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. It's a mix of these sessions, these live stream sessions and uh, videos, music videos, all that different stuff. It's just a mix. But anyway, so I have a team help me and to keep organized with it. I use a spreadsheet. It's really boring, but... Uh, we have a spreadsheet that we use for all of our clients and uh, I just view myself as one of my own clients, you know, and uh, go from there. Just schedule in. All right. On this day, I'm going to do this. On this day, I'm going to do this. And when I make videos, like I make four or five videos at a time. That's what I mean by batching. I think I abandoned the batching thing. But uh, I got that from a great book called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. He talks about batching a lot. He talks about it in terms of email and how it like frequently distracts us all the time from actually getting anything done. So... Uh, batching different kinds of tasks. So right now I'm working on the label, then I'm working on my content, then I'm working on this and kind of batching it all together and trying to do all of it at the same time. So that's been uh, super, super helpful. Have you ever felt any problems with your mouthpiece or did your first one just happen to be perfect for you? Well, that's kind of like a loaded question, I suppose, because I think that consistency over time leads to good things. So I always go to the idea that it's me, 
It's not the horn. It's not the mouthpiece. Probably I'm doing something wrong. So I try to own that first and not blame the equipment. So that's number one. Uh, don't blame the equipment for problems that have to do with your deficiencies as a player. Um, if I've exhausted all other, thi other like things, all other options, then maybe I'll consider like, oh, maybe the mouthpiece isn't right or maybe the horn's not right. And so that's why it's taken me so long to switch equipment or to not change. And I don't change mouthpieces very often, if at all. I haven't historically. Um, so it's really important to um, have that consistency, I think, and give it a chance because a mouthpiece always feels good for like a minute and then like it feels bad after that. I have had problems, sure, but most of the time they go away if you just keep practicing. I think that that's how it goes. But um, I tried a lot of different mouthpieces. What, the way I landed on the one I have now was because I ordered. So when I was an undergrad, just starting out thinking that maybe it was the mouthpiece. Maybe it's the mouthpiece. I got to try it. Because um, I played a Shilky 51D for a long time. And then I was just like, this is too big and heavy. Like, what is going on here? So I just ordered like a crap ton of mouthpieces. <laughs> and I literally like 15 or 20 because like Musician's Friend or Woodwind Brasswind, one of these websites, they had like an unlimited return policy at one time where you could just send in, send back as much stuff as you ordered. So <laughs> I would do that and I would just kind of stick with it. I landed on the Marcinkowitz. Um, I actually ended up forgetting to send it back. Uh, but then I just uh, stuck with it. And I think it matches well with the sound concept and the players that I like. I mean, Steve uh, Davis, he plays the Marzinkowitz too. And like, I love his sound and approach, even though I don't necessarily maybe sound like him, but I aspire to stick with it, man. It's probably you. It's not the equipment, you know, great players can pick up any equipment and sound good. That's my approach. Like it doesn't matter so much, you know, it may matter 10% this way, 10% that way, but overall, I want to be able to do it all myself, you know, pick up anything and play and sound good. I've seen Michael Deese do that, Elliot Mason. You've, there's videos of Irby Green and Bill Watrous doing that, just picking up any horn and sounding great. So that's what I aspire to be able to do that. <laughs> so for me, that means uh, just sticking with one thing and, but also just not caring that much because it's like, if you have a vision of what you want to sound like really strongly in your head, if you're interested in trying mine, it's back in stock, so you can check that out. It's in the store. But uh, it's, that's the 6ES, so it's a little bit bigger, wider, different cup shape. People say it's shallow, but it, it looks, it's, it's a deceptive. It looks like it's shallow, but it's actually not. Um, it's just the outside cup look, doesn't look like as deep as like a Shilky 51D, for example. But it, is, but it is, and the measurements are deceiving, and the shape of the cup is deceiving to the eye. So, wow, it's been a great Q&A today. Uh, really glad to connect with everyone. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for your questions. We'll be back next Friday. It'll be April 2nd. Wow, March is almost done uh, for that. And I look forward to connecting. So have an amazing week and uh, we'll catch you all.